This episode of Unexpecting is brought to you by our friends at Carrot Fertility, the global platform for fertility healthcare and family forming support. Go to carrotfertility.com slash unexpecting to learn more. It's crazy that I just thought, oh, I'm an athlete. This should be easy. And I think I just was so used to my body working for me. My body did not fail me for most of my life until it failed me. Hi, everyone. It's Olympic figure skater and broadcaster Tara Lipinski, and you're listening to Unexpecting. I started this podcast with my husband and now co-host Todd to bear it all about my untold five-year and often excruciating journey with infertility. The goal is simple, to take this taboo subject and demystify it, to normalize these important conversations, and hopefully to find answers. Nothing is off limits. And over the course of the series, we'll unpack my fertility mystery, the trauma we've endured, and hopefully offer those struggling alongside of us some valuable insight. So laugh and cry with us as we ride this unimaginable fertility roller coaster, hopefully toward a brighter day. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. And if you know someone struggling with fertility, tell them about this podcast. Because our path might be different, but it doesn't mean we're lost. Hi, I'm Tara Lipinski. And I'm Todd Kapastashi. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh. It's very formal. <laughs> Do you want to add anything like you're my husband? Yeah, we're married. Yeah. We're a couple. Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying my best to be uh, like a broadcaster. Oh, you yeah, know, you're keep a up. pro broadcaster, yeah. so I'm trying to fit in here. Yep. And this is our very first episode of this podcast. Episode one. Episode one. Yeah. And it's been, man, we've had a long five-year difficult journey. It's been a fertility journey from hell, to say the least. And I feel like... At least for me, this is finally time to share what's been going on in our lives for five years. And I feel like it's taken me a long time to get to this point. And it's strange because I feel like I've been in the public eye since I was so young and I was always so comfortable and still I am so comfortable sharing almost every part of my life with everyone. But this was something that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't prepared for. And I feel like I've been like, keeping the secret or I've been living a little bit of a lie. You know, if you're watching me on TV or on a broadcast or on social media, you would think like, oh, our life is totally fine. It's going okay. When in reality, the last five years for us have been a complete and utter shit show. Our life has turned upside down and we still don't have a baby in the house. What's different now? Why do you feel like we should talk now? Or what do you hope to gain from telling our story that's still ongoing? Well, you know, first, I just want to mention, I really like you as the host <laughs> asking me. I mean, we have to take the the people listening through through our journey and you're, you're our leader, but it's, it's an interesting dynamic here. I'm liking it. I'll ask the questions over <laughs> okay, here. Okay. Well, I think first and foremost, probably just that I'm ready mentally and emotionally. I was not ready because when we started this journey, I had no idea what to expect and everything just felt like it was crashing in on me and I didn't know how to cope. And I I was struggling just to get through our days, through the next treatment, month to month. And it just felt like I had so many anxieties and so many fears about our future that if I said anything publicly, it felt like that it would almost be confirmed and a reality. And I was also scared if there were comments or opinions from people that they would say something because at the time I really didn't have a lot of knowledge about what was going on and we were just beginning. And I felt like if someone said something that could scare me even more, that emotionally I just wasn't going to be able to do it. And it felt like a distraction. It felt like I just had to put my athlete glasses on, blinders on, and just try to get through through our days. And I think you know, obviously that's why we're able to talk about it now. But I think more importantly, and the reason why I felt like I really tried to push myself to get to this point, because at, at a certain point, I was like, does anyone need to know? But I feel like, you know, if you're struggling with infertility, it is the loneliest club there is. And I think I, I'm just at the point now where I'm tired of being lonely and I realize there's a bigger conversation of, yes, we're hearing more people talk about IVF and infertility, but not, but not to the extent it should be. And I feel like women, there's still something taboo about it. And it, and it 
probably is because it feels like this should be the most natural thing to do to be able to procreate. This is what your body was made to do. And I think a lot of women still feel shame around it, feel like they're failing, feel like their body's defective, even though obviously it isn't. But I feel like the more we talk about it, the better it will be. Yeah. And I think what's interesting too, is you see now in 2023, a lot of women, couples are coming forward, celebrity couples, people, public figures are coming forward with their stories. And I think that's great. But sometimes I feel, and they're allowed to share to the extent that they want to, that's their right. But sometimes when I read some of these stories, it feels like, you know, one short story, a few quotes, and I'm always left wondering like, well, what what was their problem? Or like, what's the, where's the emotionality in the whole journey? Like, you know, it's just not maybe in in depth enough. Yeah. You read between the lines. You have this big picture, this overview of it. But for someone who's going through it, you want details. And I think a lot of women that are going through infertility and they're starting the journey and really don't have that information yet, they they want to know. They want to know exactly what happened, not just, oh, this is big picture. Let me take you fast forward through, you know, our journey. And I think for me, I've spent so many nights you know, deep diving and black holes in the internet of trying to find women who have gone through similar situations to what we've been going through. And it's sometimes really hard to find. But I also understand why people don't want yeah. to to open up about it because it's really hard. Right. Well, before we really get into everything, I have one important preface I'd like to to preface. throw out there. Okay, guys, I have to just... I like prefacing. I need to stop this down because pre- he is the king my friends uh, call me the preface king. Yeah, he, like pre- he prefaces <laughs> everything. And to be honest, I'm not sure why. I haven't really even... I don't know. I feel you, like a therapist could probably needs, tell me yeah, why. Yeah, you preface everything. Okay. I do. But I have a, an important one, I think, okay. for this. And the preface is life is very difficult. There is a lot of pain and suffering out there. People go through very difficult things in life. I mean, you know, our f- fertility journey that we'll describe, and again, that we're still sort of on was very hard, emotionally taxing, very, very, very difficult in our world. But people are out there getting cancer at a young age. Parents are losing kids in car accidents. There is a lot of terrible things that that go on in the world. So, you know, I think we are acknowledging that this is just our journey. This doesn't mean it's no. the craziest yes. thing anyone's ever gone no, through in life. No, it's not unique but- to us. So many people are going through infertility and this is not the worst thing in the world. And I think we both know that. I think I have become a prefacer in my group with friends or family when, you know, through the years I'm explaining disappointments or failures or telling them results. You know, I feel like I always have to preface that, you know, we're still healthy. We still are grateful for so many other things in our life. And that, like you said, there are tragedies happening every single day to people. People are getting cancer and everything you listed that it, for me, I feel like I'm very sensitive around this because yes, our story is hard, but I I know it's not just us. And I feel like you help me though. Because yeah, I think you're almost too sensitive to that. I know, that you because, help me with this. You know, at the same time, you can say there's a lot of bad things going on in the world. There's levels to this stuff, right? There's right. levels of suffering yeah, in the world. I like when you explain the levels. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're on one of those levels. We're not at, obviously at, there's a million levels yeah. and there's a top level, but- yeah. That doesn't mean that your experience wasn't, isn't currently traumatic, wasn't traumatic, that we haven't gone through a lot of difficult things together. And I don't think we should be apologizing. But speaking of that, I mean, again, I I always think about these levels because when we started this journey, one of my good friends was diagnosed with a horrific, terrible prognosis of cancer. And she didn't even have time to do a fertility treatment cycle to possibly, you know, get embryos for a future family. And she had to go right into to treatment. And that always gave me so much perspective of, you know, our failures or our disappointments in this journey. Yeah. And I think when you get down over the five years, we've gotten very down in the dumps. And there are some times where you're snapped out of it mm-hmm. when you read you're a headline like, oh or goodness. a friend goes through something yes. and you're like, okay, we are healthy. This is awful and horrible and sucks. But, but we will get through it. Yeah, we'll get through it. One of the most interesting things about this podcast is a lot of people remember you. Most people maybe remember you as the 15-year-old Tara Lipinski who won a gold medal in the Olympics being the best in the world at something. And now we're transitioning to 
be, us being the worst at no, something. Literally, <laughs> we are last place finishers. We're we, last place we, in fertility. We can't, we, we didn't even qualify. We're not even qualifying for the event. We are, we are that far behind. But speaking of skating, I know all about this, obviously, but to people who maybe don't know about your career or how old you were and all that stuff, just give us a quick kind of overview of your skating career. Of me. Of um, you. <laughs> So when I was three, I started roller skating all because of a Care Bear. That's a different story, but the 1980s, you'll know. And then I switched over to ice skating. And then the next, you know, 12 years of my life was spent in a in an ice cold rink traveling, you know, to different states for different training centers and coaches. And, um, you know, that was a different journey too. So difficult, so many, you know, trials and obstacles, but at the same time, so many amazing core memories. And I love this sport more than anything. I am so grateful that somehow I got to that rink. And um, then I became a national uh, champion, a world champion. And then in 98, 1998, I became an Olympic champion and then moved on and um, had a pro career, which was exciting. And then now fast forward to still being um, a part of my sport with my partner in crime, the amazing Johnny Weir. Love Johnny. Love love Johnny. um, Where we get to commentate figure skating. So give everyone some cliff notes on our love story and how we met. Oh, you know, I love (laughs) talking about TNT. Uh, Okay, I'll try to keep it short. Um, So we met in 2015 and I was living part-time in New York and I met you at the sports Emmys. I was there on behalf of NBC and I was presenting some Emmys and you were there, you were up for a few Emmys and we actually have a picture of me handing you an Emmy, which is incredible. That was the first moment we ever laid eyes on each other. And then you fell in love with me on that stage that night, right? No, I mean, I if I'm... (laughs) You know this, like I did not remember you. <laughs> and but but let me tell you why. And I think this is really might be part of it is okay, so everyone, if if you know me, you'll know that I can be a little if I have any type of anxiety, it's healthy. Did you say a little? I said, well, I'm much better now. It like the infertility journey is definitely has, yeah. you know, calmed when me. When we down. met though, yeah. Oh boy. Oh, yeah, look, I, I say I err on the side of being a hypochondriac, you know? You're cautious. I'm, I'm cautious, <laughs> very cautious. Um, so the point is that time- Neon pee. Neon pee. So during that week or two weeks or whatever it was, my pee was neon, like highlighter color. Like I've never seen pee this color. Like Ghostbusters neon yes, green it was like pee. I was scared. I was like, I don't understand what's coming out of my body. And like I went and I got a test and I remember there was like a few points off, which the doctor was like, it's fine. But I'm like, this doesn't feel fine. And I didn't want to go that night. Like I- Well, it's crazy. You almost didn't go, I right? almost didn't go. Like it was like minutes before, but I was like, this is, you know, I have to be there for NBC. Like I, this is not just like a social event. I like threw my hair in like a top knot. I don't even know if I had makeup on. My friend Billy, like we just ran there last minute and I was very focused on my pee and I probably was, that's why I probably didn't remember you. But that's not 100% true because I do remember you won like 42 Emmys. Like you- No, not 40. (laughs) I'm exaggerating. But you won so many Emmys and I just remember saying to Billy, like who is- this guy that keeps winning all these Emmys because I kept seeing you come to the stage. And I do remember saying to her, I like his shoes, but your so face- my shoes. I don't remember anything about you. Which is weird because no offense to the sports Emmys, but it tends to be an older <laughs> crowd. So a 30-year-old coming on stage, yeah. you didn't remember? It was I just the shoes yeah, and the neon I didn't pee. remember. Yeah, I didn't remember. But- so the next day, which is crazy, we get I get an email and you are on this email with Chris and Chris says to me, okay, so this is Aunt Chris, Chris Jansen. My who, Aunt Chris. Your Aunt Chris. But I didn't know that. This is Chris Jansen, who I've worked with for many years through NBC. And when I moved to New York, she would invite me places and, and let, you know, she would kind of help me meet people. She was sometimes setting me up yeah, on dates. Uh, didn't Did introduce us you. for some reason. Yeah, she didn't mention you. Thanks, Chris. Um, but she was like, oh my goodness, you handed my nephew a sports Emmy last night. You need to meet up with him. He lives in LA. And so that was the beginning of us. And then we started emailing awkwardly <laughs> for like a month to set up the date. 
I don't know why we were emailing for so long. It was like 1999. Yeah, emails, only emails. There was AOL Instant Messenger messaging. Did we even, did we exchange numbers? No. No. We emailed until the first date. Yep. But first date happens and then Cliff Notes, six months later, we were engaged. So quick courtship. Yeah, (laughs) six months later. And here we are. Eight years later. Here we are. Here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Still here. (laughs) Still here. So let's start kind of at the beginning, beginning. When you were growing (laughs) up, go way back. Way back. When when you were growing up in skating, how knowledgeable were you? It's kind of a weird question, but how knowledgeable were you about reproductive health in general? Uh, Not very. And I bet if you asked any of my friends in my class, when we went to that fifth grade sex ed class, we'd all have the same answer. I feel like, yeah, I probably got the basic basics. I walked away with that. And I walked away with pregnancy prevention. Do not get pregnant. Fear. Fear. Do not (laughs) get pregnant. But what's interesting, I I feel like, is that as awkward as that class was and uncomfortable, it like never got better. I think like sex education or talking about these issues, even in high school or post-high school, no one talks about them. They're still kind of uncomfortable and taboo. And I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I think many books have likely been written about this subject, but standards of decency in different countries, religion, I think there's a lot of reasons. Or just being afraid to use certain terms that may feel out of place. But again, it goes back to education. And if we weren't learning it in fifth grade, when were we learning it? Because in all honesty, I feel like I got to 30, 35 and still hadn't learned it. So no one was telling me anything. Yeah. Were you the kind of person growing up, probably more in high school, but were you fearful of pregnancy? Were you terrified to get pregnant? Yeah, I feel I feel like I, I must have thought it was so easy, which is I mean, that's sort so of what sex, that's what sex ed was, right? It yes. was like, do not get pregnant. Do Your not, life yeah. is over. Don't get pregnant. I feel like back in the day, it was D.A.R.E. Remember the D.A.R.E. program? And then your sex ed class, don't get pregnant. So I feel like for me, I was obviously so focused on skating. It wasn't like I had a normal childhood or even a few years fast forward where I was dating. I wasn't dating. I was just thinking about skating. And it's funny, I, I look back and I I think sports are so incredible for kids, for anyone. And I mean, I love skating so much, but was it the healthiest? You know, you really break it down and and it to be an elite athlete. And I I, I think I've read some things about this where they say, It's almost like you have to have an unhealthy, complete obsession with this one thing where you're going to work on that for 10,000 hours and become perfect at it. And I think with that focus, that singular focus, everything else in your life drops off. All I cared about was don't get injured and skate. On a related note, one of the things I found super interesting when we first met was you had told me at some point early in our relationship that you had gotten your period really, really, really late mm-hmm. in life, right? Yeah, 25. I mean, that's late. That is really late. And and looking back now, I'm wondering why no one really said anything to me. Like, I think back, I went to a plenty of doctors, but no one seemed alarmed. I think it was one of those things, especially in sports, where, it, it, you know, it's sort of like, oh, you have low body fat, you're training all the time, like it will come, it's just delayed. That's just what happens when you're an elite athlete. So I just thought oh, this is totally normal. No big deal. I'll figure it out when I want to figure it out. But right now, let's just think about skating. I mean, it's kind of weird though, because you were such an elite athlete training for the Olympics and you you would think you're the most healthy person on the planet, but there are, I guess, unhealthy aspects. It's probably not the healthiest to not get your period until you're, you know, in your mid-20s. 100%. And you know, you think about it and eventually doctors, when I was getting close to that 20 mark, were really starting to say like, oh, I wonder what this is. Let's check back again, you know, in six months and we can always give you some medication, which I never wanted to take medication. I was always like worried about that. So I didn't go down that and just thought my body would do it. And I I think obviously the excuse was being an athlete, but I think another problem kind of a perfect storm for me is I had other issues going on, thyroid and, you know, pituitary and all this other stuff that caused that delay. The weird thing for me, I feel like when you told me that, when we, you know, I don't know, a few months into when we were dating, you just kind of mentioned it offhand. And I remember thinking, this is how uneducated I was. I was like, oh man, she didn't get her period until 25. 
that must mean she has like 10 more years of like great fertility. We're going to have kids into our fifties because she didn't start having her period so late. If I mean, I feel embarrassed to say that I, I kind of thought the same thing, but guys, (laughs) definitely not true. Learned a lot. You're born with all the eggs that you'll ever have and you just keep losing them. And I had, I had come across this crazy stat um, that fetuses in gestation, you know, like I think it's something like 20 something weeks start losing their eggs, which is just, it's so unfair that women, their fertility timeline is so much shorter than a man's. Then when you got older, you know, even around the time that we met, you're in your early thirties, weren't your friends or people maybe who are older than you or your friends being like, hey, Tara, maybe it's a good idea to get your fertility check. No, no. And I don't know if it's, you know, I've lived in New York and LA and I don't know if geographically maybe there's something that comes into play there and people are starting families later in certain areas. And, you know, I feel like part of the the problem was most of my friends didn't have kids at that age and didn't even start a family yet. And they never mentioned it even for themselves. And I think we just all thought we can get pregnant whenever we want. Like we are hardworking women. We have a career. We need to figure everything out when it's time for us. It's going to be good. And that's not how it works. And I think also, you know, growing up and even in my 20s and 30s, I felt like I saw so many magazines and it would be like, oh, this celebrity uh, is pregnant at 42 years old. And there was never actual details behind that pregnancy or what it took to make that pregnancy happen. And it just felt like this very pro, you can have a baby whenever you want a baby. Yeah. And I think that's hard. And this is kind of a touchy subject, but it's like, there's two sides of that. One, you know, obviously there was this progression from an amazing progression and something that had to happen with women. It's okay if women have careers and they don't have to be homemakers or raise their kids like, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. We've had this evolution where now it's like women can be CEOs and they don't have to have kids when they're 22 years old. They can have kids later in life, which is 100% a good thing and needed to happen and all that. And we're still kind of evolving in that way today, which is a great thing. But the other side of that is I think you know, we, to your point, we started applauding women. Oh, they're 40 years old and, and they had their career. Now they're having kids, which is great. But maybe with this ignorance of not knowing that fertility falls off a ledge right, when like you're this 40. Is, this is the problem. And I hate talking about it. I even have, you know, I, I'm parts of conversations that I'm in where you'll hear someone say like, oh my goodness, like, don't worry about that. Like, you know, geriatric pregnancy, ha ha ha, all of this stuff, which is like, I understand it. Like as a woman, I'm really, really annoyed that men, that you could have a baby at 60. Like that's not cool. That's not fair. And no woman wants to talk about that. Like you want to be able to say like, I can do anything and get pregnant when a man gets pregnant. Like I can do that. And I think, like you said, it's 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 hard because that's just not, unfortunately, it's not the reality. And I think what's upsetting for me is I really believed that. And I feel like if I would go back and actually know the facts, I would have been more empowered as a woman to then take steps to secure my fertility. So then I didn't have to rely on getting married at a certain age and I didn't have to rely on a man in any way or feel inferior because my fertility would end sooner than his. But if you look at the stats, it's insane. Even in your 30s, you know, peak fertility is like 18 to 25. Like it is crazy to think about. I mean, that wasn't even close to a thought in my mind. And even in your 30s, you know, you're like in my mind, that's so young. It's still like a 10 to 15% chance of natural pregnancy a month. And then if you do an IUI, maybe it's, you know, 5% more. It's the stats are sad that when a woman reaches 40, that's like a steep decline. And a lot of fertility clinics won't even take a woman, you know, when they want to do a cycle at 42 or 43. And one other thing related to that too is, I think this is probably more for men than women, but maybe you tell me with your friends that there's sort of a level of shame associated with questioning maybe your own fertility or it's, oh, like there's an ego involved, I guess. It's like this arrogance of like, well, I'm... I'm the shit and I'm healthy and I'm athletic and I'm this and I'm that and I'm high achieving and I 
like, how could I possibly have an issue? I'm sure I can get pregnant at any age and maybe within friends groups, it's sort of like, you don't talk about it because you don't want to be the one to be like, you don't want to be the one that's the odd one out. You don't want to be the one that you feel like, oh goodness, is something wrong with my body? Am I less than because I can't do this? Or if I couldn't do it, what does that make me? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think for you probably in those conversations, having been an athlete for so long, achieving something, you know, miraculous, being the best in the world at something, there was probably this sense of, well, most of my life I've, I've, my body has never failed me before. I'm in great shape. I'm so healthy. Like what reason could I possibly have to even worry about this? Well, I mean, that's part of the problem, right? It was, it was more though that I wasn't educated or there was never a moment that someone brought this to me to even you know, think about to like drop a seed in my brain to start thinking about a fertility timeline and a biological clock. You kind of heard, oh, your biological clock is ticking. And that's the only thing I feel like I ever heard that could remotely make me think that there's a timeline. And I think that I also felt like I work out, I work my muscles, I, you know, hydrate. I'm, I was a like elite athlete at one point in my life and I eat healthy and I just thought, oh, maybe these things correlate. And that's not necessarily true. Of course, you know, for good fertility, you don't want to smoke, you don't want to drink, you want to have good nutrition, but that is not always what fertility is about. I mean, there are some real um, markers for infertility that have nothing to do with that. So it's crazy that I just thought, oh, I'm an athlete. This should be easy. And I think I just was so used to my body working for me. My body did not fail me for most of my life until it failed me. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Hopefully through this podcast, you learn more than just my story. My hope is to give you information that you didn't have before and knowledge that could potentially change your IVF or infertility journey for the better. Today, we're talking about Receptiva DX. I didn't know about this test when I started IVF, but taking this test helped alter the course of our decision-making. And I personally believe this is an integral test that should be considered for IVF patients who suspect they might have endometriosis, as well as patients that have experienced recurrent pregnancy loss or experienced at least one IVF failure or have been diagnosed with unexplained infertility. What does Receptiva DX look for? It identifies inflammation on the uterine lining usually associated with endometriosis. If you have inflammation here, implantation and pregnancy may be jeopardized and make an otherwise successful outcome a failure. As we know, each embryo is so precious. And for that reason, Todd and I want to make sure we covered all of our bases. I can't wait to share more about my personal experience with Receptiva DX. But in the meantime, please ask your doctor about this test to learn more or go to ReceptivaDX.com. Now time for some helpful info. And I am so passionate about this next subject. To start, let's recap the obvious. IVF and fertility treatments are costly and not accessible to everyone. Just saying those words aloud saddens me and I hope that changes very soon. So it is incredible when you come across a company like Carrot Fertility whose mission is to make fertility healthcare accessible and affordable for all, regardless of age, race, income, or sexual orientation. They do this by working with companies to add fertility benefits to their employees' benefits offering. Whether you're struggling to build a family or thinking ahead to secure the dream of a future family, fertility treatments like IVF are incredible options for so many, and Carrot helps make that opportunity and possibility a reality. Think of all the lives and future lives that could be changed by the opportunity these fertility treatments give that many don't have access to. If you don't already have fertility benefits at your company, you can request Carrot for your company by visiting carrotfertility.com slash unexpecting. Thank goodness Carrot is looking out for us. Another interesting thing that you've talked a lot about, and this isn't to disparage any OB out there, but there is a disconnect between what OBs might tell you and push you to do and what a fertility doctor might. Essentially, OBs aren't really alarming you or alerting you to the fact that you're getting older, your fertility might be decreasing, and they probably should. Well, the problem is, is you're going to your OB. You're not going to a reproductive endocrinologist 
fertility doctor to check your fertility. You're going to your yearly checkup where you you get a pap smear and you get an exam. Now, I would love if that changed and, and women's reproductive health became more of a priority and it just became standard that that yearly check included you know, a blood test to check your fertility markers and it was covered by insurance, but that doesn't always happen. I mean, you think about IVF and most of the times it's not covered by insurance. Now, granted, I should say more and more companies are doing that. I actually had a friend who saw our struggles and was like, uh-oh, I'm going to go freeze my embryos because this sounds scary and I hope that's not going to happen to me. And luckily, her, you know, her insurance through her company covers IVF, which again, I just think that should be an option for for people that, for women that want to start a family while they're working. Yeah, and I think part of the impetus even for this podcast is that part part of it's the education of all that that maybe we can offer because I think we've talked about this a lot, but I have some female friends who when we went through this five-year journey and are going through this five-year journey, I've said to them like, hey, you're... And it's an uncomfortable conversation to have with like a female friend of, hey, like, you know, I know you're focused on your career. And these are like very high achieving people mm-hmm. in sports television yeah. and and just doing great things career-wise and not necessarily putting off having a family, but just hasn't happened yet. And having these conversations like, hey, like, maybe you should like freeze your eggs. Have you ever had any of these tests? And uh, who am I to say yeah, that right, to one of right. my female friends? But luckily they were super receptive because they know you know, the journey we've yeah. been on. And I've had a couple of friends who have done it just because of conversations I've had. And they were just like you. They basically said, I just never, I guess I never thought about it. I thought I was good. Yeah. And I bet also if that wasn't covered by insurance for many of your friends, they probably wouldn't have gone through that process. No, no. We got married in 2017. You were 34 years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just young and the spry young chicken <laughs> young broadcaster <laughs> what was when we got married what was your plan in your head because I don't even know if you ever even told me no we didn't have a great plan <laughs> in place we didn't have like, a, what was our plan to start a family we didn't even talk about it isn't this crazy thinking back TK we didn't do you remember any time we had a like adult conversation I feel like I remember kind of like prodding a little bit like hey like <laughs> are we gonna <laughs> but have I kids like at some point you weren't really pushing that. Yeah, I was taking your lead a, b- a little bit, I think. Oh, okay. We're finding out tons <laughs> of things here. <laughs> no, uh, not that I was taking your lead. I think I just, yeah, I actually was probably like, oh, this is nice. She like doesn't want to have kids right away. Kids yet, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, again, back to what I always thought, like, oh, in my 40s, we'll just have kids. Let's, we met later in life. Let's travel. Let's see the world. And then let's get to it. And I just thought, oh, it's just going to happen. And that's how people do it. Was that the main reason? Just travel and just kind of living life as a... Because I think for me too, what's so hard about getting meeting the person you want to spend your whole life with so late in life is you feel like you want to have those few years where it's just you. Yeah, which, you want to be just TNT. You just want yeah. to be us and then you want to add. You don't want to feel rushed. You don't want to feel like, oh, I already met my person late in life and now I'm rushing and we're missing out on what other couples had when they met in their 20s. So I think... That was a feeling. And I think also for me, I I also wanted to think about when we were going to do it. Like it needed to be planned. And I didn't have the luxury of just winging it because of my job. We have an Olympics every two and four years and that's what I do. So just, you know, planning is a big part of what happens in our industry with a lot of people and couples that want to get pregnant and they plan it so that they're not, giving birth during an Olympic game. So I really just thought, okay, like we'll figure out the right time, just not now. And then in 2018, this sort of set a lot of this off, I'd say. In 2018, you had a conversation with a friend that alerted you or scared you into kind of thinking a little differently about all of this. Yes, 100%. I I saw a friend struggling, but again, didn't really know the details, didn't understand what was happening behind the scenes. And then one day we had a long chat And it really scared me because it was the first time I was hearing this information and from someone who I thought was healthy and fit and would have no problems and so very young that, oh, people can have problems in their late 20s or 30s. Like 
that didn't even cross my mind. And then hearing her story and knowing there's so many things that go into fertility, you know, endometriosis or quality of eggs or all of these things that sounded so foreign, but it seemed so dire in this this person's journey, I was immediately worried because I started to think, okay, I'm, what was I, 36? I'm getting up there. Now I need to make sure. And I think it kind of, my my anxiety, my health anxiety antennas went up and my hypochondriac little personality came out and thought, oh my goodness, I need to figure this out right away. And I remember on the way to the airport, I was texting my OB asking for fertility doctors. And I remember on the plane, three of he he gave me three names and I just knew that was our plan. <laughs> What's kind of funny is that we went from overnight essentially from you being horrified, completely <laughs> terrified of pregnancy to the point where like every single thing you could use to not get pregnant, we were using. <laughs> to my dismay, <laughs> we were using. And then in a snap of the fingers, all of a sudden you're like, we, oh, we're we never going to get we, pregnant. We need we insurance. Oh my gosh, we got to start this now. And I'm like, oh my god. Well, that was my word. I just, all of a sudden I got in my head, I wanted insurance and, you know, a lot of people in my industry, you're working around the Olympic Games every two to four years. And, you know, for for Johnny and I, that's our biggest gig out of our skating season is to go to the Olympics once every four years and now every two years for the Summer Olympics. And I just thought, okay, this is also good because we'll be able to control when we get pregnant. We'll get these embryos and then you know what? We'll just pop them in in November and boom, we'll be pregnant. And that was that was my plan. You mentioned being on the plane and texting the OB and getting some names. What was kind of the next step after that? The next step was to make an appointment, which like anything in infertility takes a long time. And um, it was just to to get an appointment, not even start treatments, but it took about six months to get that appointment. But I remember, you know, sort of next steps. I came home that night or the next day and kind of told you, probably blurted out like, this is our plan. This is what we're going to do. And I just remember, I mean, we got, we had a little bump in the road. I, I remember being pissed at you because I felt like your reaction wasn't like, sure, let's go do this. Disagreement number one. Yeah, it was, it sort of just took me off guard a little bit. I was, Yeah, and in my head, I think the reason for that was, I it felt like we were skipping like 10 steps. It was like, okay, we haven't tried to have, you know, children naturally yet. We haven't, we haven't done any, we haven't done an IUI, which is just a lesser mm-hmm. IVF. Like, why are we skipping a bunch of steps? That was one. Well, also, we had never once tried, ever. Yeah. It's not like we were trying, like never did we try to get pregnant. Yeah. So I understand. Yeah, and I think the bigger thing, and this is where some of the, hopefully the vulnerability of like what we went through can come out in this is, you know, there's an an ego thing too associated with, you just come home and you're like, we're doing infertility stuff. And my reaction, like, you know, a Neanderthal was, well, <laughs> my sperm is amazing. Like I have super sperm. I'm going to populate the entire earth with my sperm. Don't tell me we need to see a fertility doctor, which is so dumb. Again, just ignorance. Um, but, you know, there is that sort of, it feels like you're, it, it's almost like you're taking a small shot at me, which is right. not what which you're is, doing. No. But it's how people, I think it's a, how a lot of couples, well, unfortunately, have these issues when they go through this stuff. Spoiler alert, I didn't really have super sperms. So. <laughs> <laughs> you could have. We'll get into it. Yeah. What was for you? I remember it being kind of odd, but that first meeting with the fertility doctor that we saw. I mean, I definitely was just like, I need reassurance. I just want to go in. I think I went in and said, okay, like this is our plan. You know, we're good, right? And obviously this doctor isn't going to be able, like no doctor, he's not God. He doesn't know. He's, you would have to go through the process to really know. And again, we were in our mid thirties. So he kind of gave us. He gave it to us straight, honestly. Yeah. He's like, I don't know. told us how it was. Well, it wasn't even just, (laughs) I don't know. It was also like, well, you may have, I don't know. You, you could have issues. Yeah. And And I (laughs) I don't think either of us reacted well, which is just crazy to think back that I just remember leaving being like, oh man, that guy was like abrasive. But now I look back and I'm like- Debbie Downer over there. (laughs) (laughs) Like questioning my vitality. Like, what are you talking about? But but that's the ignorance and, you know, it's like the process you have to go through to not think that way because 
yeah, I mean, we probably discounted this great doctor because we thought he was being an asshole when right. he was just was literally telling us how telling it is. Telling us facts. Telling us facts. So then we went to another doctor that was on my list. You yeah, know, not shocking. We didn't go with him. Yeah, we didn't go with him. And, you know, obviously my OB had, you know, I think gave me a great list of doctors. And um, we went to California Fertility Partners, which was very close to our home, which was great. And we went to a great doctor who is our doctor, Dr. Beck. And we we had our first appointment with her. Yeah. But when we went with Dr. Beck, we decided obviously to do IVF, which we've talked a little bit about why that versus an IUI. But what, I didn't even know the difference. I didn't know what an IUI was. I didn't know what IVF really was. I was like, oh, you're freezing embryos or when do they put the sperm in? I was just kind of clueless. But for people out there that might not know, what is the difference between those two things? So yeah, so IUI is what a lot of couples will choose first when they're starting their journey. They've been trying at home, it's not working and it's sort of the first step and it's where it gives the sperm a better chance to fertilize the egg and they inject the sperm into the uterus and it has about the same odds or maybe 5% better odds than just naturally trying. So not that much of a difference from naturally trying, but it is a step that works for many couples and it's a step you go to first a lot of times. And then there's IVF, which we wanted to go to immediately to A, really find out about our fertility. That's the only way to do that. And B, um, freeze embryos, but that's more invasive and you're doing shots and a lot more hormones and a longer period of time, but also a much greater chance of success. It's like 60 to 65%. Time for another preface. Okay. We should make this part of a reoccurring segment yeah. in the podcast. <laughs> Especially with you. Preface I mean, this is going to happen every 10 seconds. And it's that infertility is so expensive. Mm-hmm. Like everything yeah. in this process is so expensive and... People do various things to pay for it. Insurance covers it sometimes, sometimes it doesn't, and you just have to go out of pocket. And I, I think just the the preface is we're lucky. Like we have yeah. the means to do it, right? But we're lucky even just the fact that I wanted to get insurance. You know, we didn't even know we had a problem yet. So we were really yeah. lucky that we could make that decision. And I think this is something that you know, I am so passionate about it. I hope that, you know, through our story, we do some something amazing and great and a great step forward and are able to help other people that aren't able to do, you know, another cycle or aren't able to do IVF in the first place or don't have insurance. And again, I don't even want to talk about that because it makes me so irritated that women's reproductive health of wanting a baby or having infertility or having real issues is not covered by insurance many times. But Yes, that is not lost on on you or or me. We know yeah. how lucky we are to even have this opportunity to go. And the only thing I can hope for is that we can give back and and help other couples, you know, go through the process and have the opportunity even. You know, she did a scan on you in that first yeah. um, meeting. And did she discover anything interesting in that scan? Well, you know, I remember being really nervous for the scan because, again, I didn't realize that there were going to be other markers that could affect a woman's fertility. I thought it was all about egg count and how many follicles, which house the eggs, you know, would she see that could be potential potential eggs that they they would be able to inseminate with your sperm. And I just sort of thought, okay, this is the big reveal. And it was it was great. She's like, oh, you have a normal amount of eggs, like, Looks we good. were right. Yeah, we were Olympic right. Olympic champion. All, all is okay. <laughs> all and she did say at the end, she's like, oh, I just like, I can't diagnose endometriosis, um, you know, from an ultrasound per se, but, you know, I see so many of them. It looks like everything's kind of being pulled to a certain side. Like you might have endometriosis. And what is endometriosis? What I have. But endometriosis, um, you know, is a really painful disease for some people. Obviously, it can be silent for others, but it's where these endo lesions can grow anywhere in your pelvic area, whether it's your ovaries or your bladder, and it can cause pain and it can cause inflammation and it can cause infertility problems. But most people go to IVF to fix uh, endo-related fertility problems. IVF is usually the fix for it. Besides that little note of endo, which you kind of already knew because you had mm-hmm. had endo pain before, everything kind of looked great. And it was, I mean, at least for me, <laughs> again, the ignorance of this all was like, well, we're great and nothing else could possibly happen to go wrong. So it was like, I think for both of us, we're both competitive people. It was like, 
let's crush IVF. We're going to get a bunch of you know, embryos on ice and then get to choose when we have children and just yeah, I think we after thought, it. I thought, I think we thought, wow, we're good. I'm glad we went through this exercise. We're lucky that we were able to, you know, we did, I felt like we were doing so many tests. We did, all, remember you did all those blood tests. I did all the blood tests. All my hormone markers were good. The scan went well. So I thought we were in the, in the clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, our first IVF retrieval was actually April 19th, 2019. So about four and a half years ago. Mm. Yeah. Um, maybe just talk about, because it's a thing in the fertility world, like these retrievals are no joke to kind of prepare for, right? Right. I mean, and I didn't know what to expect either. You know, sometimes you hear stories that it's really hard emotionally and physically and how your body feels. And I think it varies to every, you know, person. Um, but it's, it's a long process, especially depending on your protocol. At my clinic, it was about two months. I'd come in, they do a scan twice. I do blood work twice. Then I come in and we'd start patches, estrogen patches after ovulation, where I'd change them off every other day. And then my cycle would start the next month and I'd come in and then it would be every few days I'm in the office doing ultrasounds and blood work and they're monitoring me. And then, you know, about two, two and a half weeks later, you do the retrieval. So it's a, a a long process and a lot can happen during that time. Things and, can not go well. And they leave a lot to you too, which is crazy to like me. Like the, the shots. The first time I had to give you that shot was horrifying. Yeah. I mean, you're jabbing a, I mean, how long are those needles? Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, you know what? There's certain needles that hurt worse because you're getting, it's multiple shots a night and there's one needle that's very dull. But those needles that for me, really... just seeing them and knowing I was jabbing that like right into your stomach and seeing it go like pretty deep. I just remember laughing. I remember the first time I was like, you've got to do this. You were like, no. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? I was like, I don't think I can what physically did you do it. I was it. like, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have like sensory issues and you're asking me to like yes. jam. Yeah, you're, a, I was. And, jam a needle into and your you're not someone doing I love stomach. During a retrieval. So yes, that was something you needed to do. I became a pro though. Yeah. What was the mindset going into that retrieval for you? Really hopeful. We were getting good news right from the start. It seemed like everything was okay. I was super Naive. We were naive. Naive. I had no idea what was happening. Didn't really understand. Just was going with the flow. And to be honest, I remember leaving an appointment. It's like a a very vivid memory of driving home from an appointment. And she just said, oh, everything looks great. And I just felt so proud of myself that I took the step. I was so proud of my body. I felt fertile. I felt like it was the first time I had like a maternal instinct turn on where I thought, oh my goodness, me and Todd, you know, like the two of us are going to create human life together. This is so cool. So a lot happened where I just, I actually enjoyed going through that process and securing hopefully insurance for us. And I, you know, and I was still living my life, going to dinners, drinking, you know, not really thinking anything of it. So you talked about the lead up, but then you obviously have the day where the eggs are actually retrieved and, you know, I have a a task that day. Todd, you do nothing in this process. Like the I men, had a task the that men, day. The men do nothing. Like <laughs> I make the appointments, I go to the okay. appointments, I, I'm getting shot up with hormones. Yes, you did everything in the lead up, but to say I did nothing is unfair because on the day yeah, you had I have one job for I have one five job. minutes. And I would like to talk about this for 30 <laughs> seconds. Oh God, what are you going to say? <laughs> because this is how it should be. So let me preface another preface. I'm going to preface it. This is the way it should be. Women should be prioritized in these offices. Correct. But they do not care about the men who walk into that office because they give you your cup. You go essentially into the bathroom <laughs> that's like right outside the main lab. So like all the lab techs... <laughs> Like, you know, you're, you got to concentrate a little bit, you know? And there's these like lab techs in the morning. They're like, they're like outside loitering right outside the door, ta- like gossiping about like, you know, is Anthony Davis going to get traded from the Lakers? And I'm like, stay, like, guys, can I have a little bit of privacy here? So, you know, yes, we don't do much, but what we do do is, you know, it's, it's not, important, I it's guess. important and, and a little bit yeah. difficult. And, yeah. I, I do my part and then they, you know, they, there's it's a surgery really, right? Yeah, I was a little nervous going into it. It's something that I, I obviously hadn't done. You go under, so you have anesthesia and 
I didn't know what to expect. So I remember feeling, you know, a little anxious and nervous, but it's a quick procedure and it went great. And Dr. Beck came out and was like, we got a good amount of follicles and eggs, you know, let's see how many are mature. Cause then there's all these steps you have to take, right? It's a process. It's a process. So over the next five days, you have, you know, the next day you find out how many mature and how many fertilize. And then you have to wait this long five-day wait to see how many make embryos, which is really the toughest step because there's a big drop off there for everyone, anyone. And then at that point, then it's another two-week wait when you send the embryos off, if you get any, to see if they are genetically normal. So then you get genetic testing. Right. Because if the genetic testing comes back and it's not good, then those embryos are not viable anyway. So you can't use them. So that time passes, obviously, and the way you check your results are this portal that they have. And just take me through sort of going onto the portal and seeing those results. Right. Like the portal, (laughs) portals are interesting. You have to go through so many steps to verify it's you. And by the time you get there, you're stressed out. But at this point, we had so many great numbers, right, leading up to this. So I had a two-week wait when we sent out seven embryos, which was fantastic. You know, the doctor was happy. You felt, I felt on top of the world. I was like, oh, how many are we going to get? Maybe we'll get seven, you know? And I wasn't too nervous, but as I opened it, I was, you know, it's, you don't know what you're going to get. And I finally opened it and it said, you have zero genetically normal embryos. So our first retrieval completely failed and we had no idea why. On the next episode of Unexpecting, we'll dive into our first failed retrieval, discuss dealing with fertility during COVID, and maybe experience our first bit of positive life-changing news. Thanks for listening to Unexpecting the podcast. Please subscribe, leave a review, and follow Unexpecting Pod on Instagram for info about upcoming weekly episode releases. And hey, DM me on Instagram if you'd like to engage about fertility. I'd love to hear your story because our path might be different but it doesn't mean we're lost.